So Money episode 1165, Candace Cook-Simmons, founder of the Cook Law Group. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. The problems we have identified over the past 15 years, we are not going to disrupt them doing the same things. And part of that is changing our mindset in terms of what happens when we put money into women, what happens when we put money into indigenous communities or underrepresented groups across the board, and what happens when we see ourselves not at the center of the narrative. Our theme on So Money is disruption today, disruption in the legal industry. If you're a lawyer or thinking about becoming a lawyer, you definitely want to listen. Disruption in the investment capital world and disruption in our personal lives. The pandemic has upended a lot. And our guest today, Candace Cook, is trying to make the most of things in all of those realms. She is founder and managing member of the Cook Law Group and a co-founder of Word Ventures. She has been featured in the New York Times as one of the top female attorneys in New York and selected as a rising star and super lawyer. But as we'll learn, her approach to law is very different. And she's recently expanded her career to launch Word Ventures, an early stage venture fund where she invests in underrepresented founders. We begin this podcast sort of unofficially. We weren't technically on the record, but I was recording. And here is Candace talking about why it's important to invest in female founders. It's not just because we want to be feminists. We want to be rich. It's profitable to invest in women. Here's Candace Cook. We're not doing anyone a favor. I think (laughs) characterized that way, it becomes almost philanthropy. And it's not, this is not a philanthropic bet. You make money off of this. And we know this because when individuals are seeking to scale, they typically go to those cultural niches where they can yield a benefit. If you look at the explosion of TikTok, if you look at the Mm -hmm. most recent valuation that people are seeing on Clubhouse, Much of that was shepherded in by essentially saying we want to tap into, and I'm using air quotes here, the culture. Well, the culture should be able to monetize that. And the culture also, you know, if we're going to be honest, has to be the holder of a lot of these mechanisms, including being on the cap table, including being in the boardroom. Uh, And so these things aren't in isolation. They need to happen at the same time. It's not an either or proposition. It's just the realization that if we are going to disrupt the problems we have identified over the past 15 years, we are not going to disrupt them doing the same things. And part of that is changing our mindset in terms of what happens when we put money into women, what happens when we put money into indigenous communities or underrepresented groups across the board. And what happens when we see ourselves not at the center of the narrative? We all benefit. So I'm excited about just looking at the world as a global citizen and not just from this monolith lens that's my way or you know, one geographic region is the only way. It's accepting and being excited about allowing a lot of brilliant ways to scale and driving capital into that. 
Well, with that, Candace Cook, welcome to So Money. We have been talking up until now. I'm going to keep going with this because I think this this transitions us so well to talking about your own contributions. If we're talking about creating a new way of doing things, your law firm, let's start there, Cook Law Group, is a personification of disrupting an industry that is so antiquated and so so like you know boys club the law industry so so let's start there and and by the way welcome to the show <laughs> thank you thank you for having me so i mean the law industry it's like a sigh right <laughs> when you say yeah. I have to say, for someone who holds herself out as practicing innovation, I would be lying if I even made a suggestion that the legal industry is anywhere close to pivoting and doing these outrageous things that I'm encouraging founders to do. And so much of that stems from the fact that the legal industry as a whole has not shifted with the times, right? When we talk about pivots, when we talk about iteration and all of the things that make great founders... What makes great firms, truthfully and historically, has not included those tenants. And so, in fact, the practice has always been you want people who fit the mold and the model of your firm, as opposed to saying, I want all of the superstars and then let's see how we're going to make them work, right? And Mm -hmm. so, because of that, we are, and, and I'll put myself in it because I am an attorney, so I won't isolate and say, we do everything differently. We do. But as a practitioner, I recognize that I'm still an attorney. Look, it's the Titanic. Uh, And a lot of that stems from not just, you know, the glacier is up ahead and you're too big to pivot in time, but also there is a a historical ego that plays into it. And so what Mm -hmm. I hope for future, not even just future attorneys, but individuals as they build companies, what I can say delineates traditional businesses from the legal industry is the fact that our guidelines and rules are antithetical to how you traditionally would build and scale a business, right? You're not doing a friends and family round. Historically, the rules do not provide outside capital to, so you're not having outside of loans, right? And so you can't have a partner who comes in and they're doing a capital call for your firm. That's just not how law firms traditionally are created in terms of partnership when we're using those names. And so my firm is different in terms of mindset and in terms of of how we execute deliverables. But in terms of founding and foundation, it had to be within those rules and that paradigm, which is quite honestly, almost a form of strangulation. Now I say that because we're going to be able to earmark this conversation in time. As we speak, other countries are essentially recognizing this is not how good business is run. And it's weird because individuals and founders and businesses go to attorneys and anticipate that they will be able to give them that thought-provoking mindset. And yet, as an institution, we have not been facilitating it. And what I see changing is this conversation, and it's going to be, I think it's fascinating, and it's almost like sitting back with popcorn and watching the show, but also wanting to make sure you're well-positioned to benefit should the show come your way, uh, is this idea of accounting firms collaborating with law firms and what that does to the industry. And I say that because 
just as attorneys and law firms are going to have to be really mindful of what that looks like, every other business should be equally mindful of what's happening five years down the road in order to plan. We can't plan for much right now. Who would have envisioned uh, COVID? But we can say what writing is on the wall, maybe in invisible ink. And in a, a little while, we're going to be able to spray it and see what the lettering is. So you see Mm-hmm. Law firms joining the large accounting firms and essentially coming up with those coalitions now. And it will be a very humbling and interesting scenario uh, when the rubble sort of is down and everyone emerges to see what the landscape looks like now. So that's, you know, big picture of the law industry. My firm, in the midst of all of that, I had worked at a firm who sort of fit the litigation boutique and high stakes litigation. So, you know, not even, I think, wealthy individuals doesn't even begin to cut it, but really high stakes, hardcore litigation, contentious litigation in some instances. And I saw big picture. And what I realized then, which I think a lot of people now are understanding, is that there becomes a point in time when things are changing so much within the ecosystem, not just the legal ecosystem, but any ecosystem, whether it's finance, whether it's tech, So much is changing that you no longer have this barrier to entry because everyone knows more than you do, right? There's there's this window. And with the sort of emergence of social media, I saw that as my, there is not another attorney out there. At at this point, I'd probably practiced for, now I'm going on 20 years, but it was around seven years then. And people were asking me for my thoughts and I was writing pieces on it. And I realized Whereas there will always be someone who is significantly wiser and just has more background in terms of litigation, in terms of business strategy and how this landscape is going to work, uh, you're not going to know more than I do because it's brand spanking new. If you're putting yourself out there, you're lying uh, if you say I'm an expert in XYZ. And so I took that as the moment to say, let's go ahead and dive in. And so that was really when, I mean, there was more to it. I took a sabbatical. I studied business. I went to the West Coast to sort of do this brain dump uh, through a business program at Stanford to learn the things I hadn't learned. But when I came back and decided to start the firm, it was based off of this entrepreneurial spirit and an idea that it's not being done yet. And I truthfully kind of waited to see if someone else going to do it. I'll just go work for them. It's just, it, it will be so much easier. I don't want to run my own firm. And at a certain point, my dad was like, look, if you want to do this, you're going to need to do it yourself. And so mm-hmm. that's what I did. And, and it being really being there for your clients in a way that traditional law firms just aren't. And, and that is being part of their strategy, really being a partner as opposed to uh, just someone who's charging them by the hour. <laughs> and and by, and, spe- and speaking of, you don't charge by the hour. It's, it's a much different fee structure. And, and so what is so great about this, in addition to obviously the approach, is the increased accessibility then of, of wise attorney and partnerships like yours to, to the average business owner or the, the business owner that may not have the deep pockets yet to to get the the support that they need because we know so often unfortunately legal troubles legal expenses are what drive businesses out of business absolutely and most of those legal issues 
are predicated off of, I won't say bad decisions, but poorly informed decisions during a different point in time before the lawyer was brought in. So it's starting a business, if everyone's honest, and I think so much of both the legal landscape and the business landscape we attempt to hide the reality that this is really a case when you're build when you're really building a business you are laying the track as Shonda Rhimes says while the train is coming you know and we love and applaud it when everything goes well but the second things don't go well there's a lot of hindsight's 2020 and a lot of shaming and a huge contingent of but why didn't they do xyz well the truth is when you're when we encourage move fast and break things but we also don't have a strategic partner to come in and allow us to at least make an informed decision without feeling like getting prudent advice will bankrupt our business because our lawyer is going to cost us X, Y, Z, right. then we, there's this gap here. And you've seen there are firms who, particularly those who are passionate about tech, who will suggest or who will say, look, we have an entrepreneur program. And then as those companies scale, that's when they start charging. And I think that's fantastic. I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. What businesses don't also recognize is that within private practice structure, the incentive partners, equity partners, at least, if everyone's honest, when they're looking at your billable hours, they anticipate that you're billing and you're billing for clients who are paying. So even if you are really passionate about these particular clients or whatever the case may be, there is also, we haven't incentivized creating a structure where lawyers who are seeking to ascend in their particular practice areas at their respective firms aren't in some way penalized internally. You may never hear about it, but they know it when it's time for them to be assessed for partner. That, yeah, this is fantastic that they love you, but quite frankly, unless they're about to hire you for to be their GC, you haven't pulled in enough revenue from your other clients. And so there's this push-pull, not to mention the fact I, I was always of the mindset that paying for someone to be inefficient just did not make a lot of sense. So it's okay if a letter you know, takes you know, X, X long to make. But this whole idea that I pay more because you get to be slower just seemed bizarre to me. And so that was never a model that I thought was sustainable long-term. It has been, it's been how the legal industry has been able to thrive, but it wasn't, that wasn't the metric by which I wanted, you know, people who work with me to be measured by. I want to see what's the outcome of the work. We know what it costs to do it. We know the time allocated to it when it's done well and efficiently, but still the time that it takes. How much is that? And let's create subscription models so that people can get what they need and they feel comfortable doing it. But let's also create a strategy partnership. No, you're right. There is something very compromised about uh, paying for, as you described, the inefficiencies of a lawyer who is benefiting from taking his or her time <laughs> financially. Uh, meanwhile, you know, you're trying to run a business and save money. What would you say are maybe the, the one or two top blind spots that new entrepreneurs tend to have when building their business? And I know that you love to work with entrepreneurs around things like intellectual property, business strategy. So maybe to those ends, what are some things that you're seeing, especially these days? The formation of the business. I feel that people are so quick, and I appreciate the cost, you know, the cost of actually getting assistance, but they will create businesses and leave loopholes. They may go on insert law portal for 
you know, computerized application business formation. And then you'll find that when they're doing these contracts, they'll say they're a business in good standing, but they never completed the publishing requirement that's required out of New York because they, I don't want to use a business name, but they used X Zoom or whatever, wherever they used, right? And so they didn't do additional things that they needed to have done uh, to finalize the process. So I think it's really important to cross T's and dot I's when it comes to the business formation and to also pick the right formation. There are people who start creating their business and they know that they want an infusion of capital and they hear terms that sound like what they want, but then they don't recognize that there are risks associated. Well, one, if you have the wrong structure in the very beginning, then sophisticated investors will come in and yes, they'll give you money and they let me not. We won't. I'm glossing over how hard it can be to get institutional capital, but let's just say all things considered, you've got someone who's interested in investing in the business. They look, and if the formation isn't correct, you can all you can fix it, but it can be costly to fix it. Is that like deciding whether you're going to be an S corp versus LLC? Is that correct. is that a, okay? Yes. So that's what we're really debating. Yes, correct formation in terms of whether you're an LLC. Whether you're, some people want to, it's so interesting. Uh, Right now, I'm seeing, and it's exciting, but when people see sort of the social justice movements that we've had occurring over the past year, then suddenly everyone also outside of traditional businesses, they want to start a nonprofit. And I'm quick to say, well, okay, well, why not be a B Corp, right? And have sort of part of your business thesis is this doing great work, but maybe nonprofit is not the appropriate structure for you. Why is that what you think of next? And it's never because of taxes, right? Which to me, at least we could have a conversation there. And so I think also just understanding the different landscapes and what's available so that people can really make the best decision based off of what they want to do long-term. And then the next thing outside of that would be doling out too much equity early because you are worried you're cash-strapped. Mm-hmm. And so every person who's giving you, you know, two cents of an idea, they are getting significant percentages of equity. And we still see that today, though I feel like there have been at this point countless articles trying to nudge people in an opposite direction. And the concern there is just, yes, you know, if that's your only option, then there will be someone who can come in and clean up your cap table and they will pay all of this money to get rid of those individuals. But the reality is it's not about any third party. It's about you as a founder. And if there is a a reason in terms of the ethos that you want to have for your business that makes sense for you to give out that much equity, then I would never suggest against it. I, I appreciate wanting people to feel valued and appreciating that having that represented by equity makes sense. The caveat there is when you are using it almost as a different type of bank account, because as a founder, you do want to hold as much equity as possible for as long as you can as you are building your business so that you have the luxury of that level of control as you grow, as you pivot, as you change, as you sell, as you exit, whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. You know, there is a gender lens of who disproportionately is encouraged to give up equity as opposed to who is not. And so changing that narrative and having a more honest conversation about if you can write them a check, write them a check for their services and keep it going. Let's talk a little bit about the pandemic. There's been so much uh, that has had to shift 
in this moment, I've been hearing a lot of the word acceleration, like people fast forwarding a lot of their plans, things that they were going to do with regards to technology or starting a new line of business or closing a business has accelerated in this moment uh, with so much uncertainty and also so much need for adapting. What has the pandemic accelerated for you, Candice? Before we were online talking, we were both sharing in our desire to have more control because right. <laughs> that seems to be something that many of us have felt like we've lost in the last year. But what what has what has advanced for you in this in this moment? Focus. I know that it's not an actual action, like, you know, relocating, though I did. I I moved my office and I was going to wait to do that. Uh, So the direct answer could very easily be, you know, relocating the office. But really what was accelerated was sort of honing in, right? I, I pride myself on operating from this broad sort of a macro lens and then micro in silos. And what I realized after last year One, we have disruption by design or destruction. So we're either designing how we're going to have things change or things blow up. And last year, I felt like even as a person who can accept and and does well with levels of change, I like my change to be orderly. You know, there I want it in steps. I don't want it all at the same time. And so last year was sort of this huge boom. It's all going to change. And and where do you go from here? And so for me, it was, okay. there are things that I've put on the back burner that I felt could wait and I believe that I was allowing them to wait because there wasn't a focus on them, right? There, The energy wasn't going there. And how does that help with the business? Well, quite frankly, I was operating from a place of there's time for it, right? There's time later. And COVID really did shed light on time as relative. I mean, there are people who haven't traveled in a year, Um Time is not necessarily going to be there. These things that we think that we can and should do may not be opportunities later. And it's not so that we operate from a place or I operate from a place of fear, but it's definitely a desire to operate from a place of focus. Fear is an interesting driver. And my greatest fear is wasting time. COVID took Mm -hmm. away convenience being an excuse and instead allowed me to focus on what are the brass tacks things we need to do to ex, you know, escalate growth, to escalate opportunity, to escalate amplifying other voices? Where's the greatest impact going to come in and how do we do that well? Let's talk a little bit about your personal background, Candice. You grew up in Atlanta, went to the University of Virginia, Vanderbilt Law School. You obviously are an entrepreneur. What has been for you the source of internal drive, uh, especially as a woman of color. I think you were on a panel uh, that Forbes invited you to speak on, talking a little bit about the challenges, the extra pressures that women of color feel to be successful, right? That you almost have to like work harder, but I don't want to assume that was your narrative. What was your personal drive all about? Well, that was definitely my narrative. If you took a whole, just randomly put a group of Black kids together, most of their parents told them, you cannot be as good, you must be better to be considered as good, you know, outside of that lens. And I think we've seen that, right? Uh, Internally, the sad truth is that if I were to say what the real driver was, at some point it was probably ego. 
right? And it's, it's uh-huh. sort of only child syndrome. It's, you know, which is this weird hybrid of firstborn versus only born. Uh, so I think in the very beginning, a lot of it was ego and wanting to impress my parents. And so not ego in the sense of narcissism, but ego in the sense of wanting to make them proud and doing things that would make them proud. What I now call cocktail party talk, right? So things that my parents can say that would make them proud. At a certain point, when I realized so many of those ego-driven goals one, my parents could care less about. My mom could care. So let's not, my mom very much so <laughs> wants cocktail conversation. But at a certain point, and this was, you know, I was working seven every day of the week that ended in Y. And for someone else at the time, I was a lawyer, but I was, a, you know, a very well paid lawyer. Uh, and I was living out, there were private planes, you name it. It was sort of this television show of this ideal. And I was, very resentful about it. I was not happy. I was, you know, just you name it. And and these are problems that one can have. And I certainly don't want to say that they are not valid, but I think in the grand landscape of so much of the world, was this a huge problem? Uh, it was a good problem to have, but it was still a problem. And so yeah. I called my parents, my dad in particular, to vent and essentially projected all of this anger on him. You all are making me work every night. It's Saturday night at 11 p.m. And I'm here with my assistant working on a brief. You all did this. And my dad let me do my entire rant. And he said, Kim, nobody asked you to be at work at 11 p.m. on a Saturday night working on a brief. You chose this job. You've chosen your life. You are at the time, maybe 26 years old. This is These are your choices. And if you have decided that these choices do not bring you joy, do not assume and project that you need to do something to make us proud. We've been proud. There's nothing more you can do that will you know, change this barometer of pride with us. Do what, you know, I need to be self-sufficient, right? So he certainly wasn't like, do what brings you joy and bliss and come live here. No. Uh, you know, you are a self-sufficient adult. You need to figure out how you can have a career that is bringing you joy, but that is not going to be something we're assuming blame for. Take a moment and figure this out. Uh, and, you know, he said it from a place of love, but I, I kind of looked, you know, snot nose, wiping my nose, looking around in my office at night, corner office. I mean, it's really like you're living this dream. And then at a certain point you have to say, whose dream is this? Like, mm-hmm. who did I allow to... What, whose movie am I in? <laughs> whose movie am I in? And while right. I appreciate the starring role, I have to say, I, this is the... I was not cast properly. Yeah. And so with that, that was truthfully when I made the decision to move to New York. Uh, and and I did that because I wanted to figure... I, this is where I wanted to live. There were so many things. And the first step was just to get the geography right. And so it stopped being ego at that point, and it became sort of exposure and expansion. And what I mean by that is there were so many people, when I would go back and do talks, I realized that they were living, and in a beautiful way, right? So not in the my parents living through me, because they actually had you know great careers of their own, so they weren't. But they, I was seeing how my success was giving other people, other people I wasn't necessarily close to, but it was giving them hope and a visual of what was possible. And I thought that was a tremendous responsibility. And the more I was able to do and could do well, the more, one, I don't want to 
be the only person in the room, right? I want people to understand that there's this well, an entire community of, of brilliant human beings, whether they're women, whether they're underrepresented individuals, whether they're more specifically they're Black women. I don't ever want to be the reason someone does not get an opportunity, right? I wanted to make sure. And so that's a, a weird pressure because I could be doing the same thing Adam is doing. And Adam will never discount Adam being sort of a name to represent a Caucasian male. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adam, there are many of them in my life. Yes. Adam will never make it so that other Caucasian men don't have opportunities, right? Josh will still have an opportunity, but one oh, Josh. mess up of Candace and suddenly every other you know, Black woman in particular or women in particular who comes through the door won't necessarily get the lens or they will have to work quadruple as hard because for whatever reason... Candace, as you know, representing all the black women, left this you know negative impact. And I never wanted that to be the case. I wanted to be the reason that other people had opportunities. I wanted to be the let's can we find another one of her so that the, you know the gates can flow open. And that's what's driving me now. Yeah. Oh, I I so relate to that. And I think that it's uh a narrative that shows up for a lot of times children of immigrants, really descendants of any groups that have been marginalized or underrepresented, where you know not the Adams and the Joshes of the world. To your point, that it's um, there is something to be said about us not taking things like college and the opportunity to go to grad school and the opportunity to get a job and the opportunity to get a paycheck for granted. But I think that. It's also important to teach and remind ourselves that we should never get complacent to say, oh, well, I'm just happy to be here. I'm happy to just even have the opportunity. No, you are entitled to go for it. And um, Candice, you are a living, breathing representation of that going for it every single day. We thank you so much for sitting down with us and giving us a sort of just a day in the life of your mind and your soul and your brain. What a gift. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. To learn more or to get in touch with Candace, you can visit SoMoneyPodcast.com. We've got all the links. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. On Friday, we've got another episode of Ask Farnoosh. Send me in your questions. You can hit me up on Instagram or email me, Farnoosh at SoMoneyPodcast.com. Or thirdly, go to the website, SoMoneyPodcast, and click on Ask Farnoosh. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope your day is so money. So money.